This is Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Native people from across the state have strong ties to the land and have been caretakers of their homelands for thousands of years. The indigenous people have adapted to the changing surroundings through the years, but continue to practice their traditional ways of life. Passing on language and culture to younger generations continues to be a priority for many people in the state. And he said today he is with all of us here uh, to this state. He said that a person with a good foundation is not going to lean over or break. Join us as we talk to some artists, dancers, and musicians about the importance of their native culture right after the news. Reporting from the Alaska Federation of Natives in Fairbanks, I'm Zachariah Hughes. On the second full day of the convention, things got political. The convention saw long speeches from both sitting U.S. senators, a presentation by the state's legislative Bush caucus, and debates by candidates running for U.S. Congress and Senate. The debates were noteworthy only for how much the candidates agreed with one another, even on issues that have been political flashpoints in the past. All four Senate hopefuls voiced support for co-management of resources and gave endorsements for native priority on subsistence to varying degrees. The day also saw remarks from the Secretary of the Interior, though before she began, 95-year-old elder Pauline Carlo shared a song called Tanality. When Secretary Jewell took the stage, she ran through the Interior Department's accomplishments and her own memorable experiences during five visits to Alaska, vowing to use the last 90 days of her job to push for issues benefiting Alaska natives. We will run through the tape at the end of this administration at full speed. Jewel grew emotional, recalling the warm reception she's gotten as secretary, but also offered news of a final secretarial order she's pushing that encourages collaborative agreements between federal officials and tribes. The purpose is to provide guidance to our nation's public land and water managers to make sure that when we share resources, that Native communities have a meaningful and substantive role in their management. The agreement would require traditional knowledge to be weighed in some decisions impacting federal lands. The date also saw discussion of SB 91, the criminal justice reform bill that cleared the legislature last session. Greg Razzo told the audience part of the reforms were to counteract the disproportionate jailing of Alaska Natives, something he saw with his own eyes on a recent visit to a detention center in Nome. It was shocking to see who was in prison because everybody in that prison, with the exception of probably half a dozen people, was an Alaska Native and generally an Alaska Native man. Panelists talked about the bill's data-driven approach designed to bring down incarceration, recidivism, and unnecessarily long sentences. Suzanne DiPietro, a member of the Alaska Criminal Justice Reform Commission, told the audience misinformation and misunderstandings have created some resistance at the local level. If somebody tells you something is in SB 91, 
don't believe them until you see it with their own eyes because there's a lot of misinformation out there. A flip side of the public safety challenges facing rural Alaska came up during a session on the status of the Village Public Safety Police Program. Jody Potts is a VPSO and oversees the program in the TCC region. She says that even though crime and violence in urban areas commands the most attention, the rates of incidents in rural communities are astronomically higher. Last year in Anchorage, eight out of every thousand people was directly affected by a crime. In the Bering Strait region, the rate was 114 per thousand. We should be outraged by this. The numbers only account for reported crime, and Potts pointed out that when a VPSO arrives in a community, reporting tends to shoot up, a sign she says that people want law enforcement presence. Potts praised communities that have begun organizing and taking steps against bad actors. Later in the program, a panel focused on the advancement of Alaska Natives heard success stories from around the state on regional nonprofits exercising self-determination in resource management, road building, and an impressive showing by homegrown healers within the Manilik region. My name is Giselle, excuse me, Dr. Giselle Staley, and I am from Kayana. Staley is a dentist working in Kotzebue. She and two other advanced healthcare practitioners, an optometrist and a physical therapist, talked about the financial and community support they received from a range of private and tribal organizations and businesses. As they showed pictures of their clinics next to family photos of subsistence activities, Staley said the program is working. They say it takes a whole village to raise a child. But in the last 10 years, I've decided it takes a whole village to raise a dentist. AFN wraps up on Saturday. Reporting from Fairbanks, I'm Zachariah Hughes. The AFN Newscast is a production of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One. Funding provided by the Siri Foundation, Chalista Corporation, the Atwood Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, ConocoPhillips, Manilik Association, Rasmussen Foundation, and South Central Foundation. This is a production of KNBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice from the Carlson Center in Fairbanks. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Culture is an important part of conversations taking place at the Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention and also this week at the Elders and Youth Conference from teaching traditions to young people to making sure culture is respected in government policy. Today we're going to take a look at music, art, and other expressions of culture by Alaska Native people. And I have a couple guests joining me here to discuss that today. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, my name is Drew Michael and I'm Yupik and Anupiak from, I was born in Bethel. Okay, great. Oh, there we go. Okay, go ahead. Please introduce, yep, please introduce yourself. Melissa Shagnoff. Uh, hi, <laughs> my name is Melissa Shagnoff. Um, I'm on Athabascan from Kenai, Alaska. And uh, yeah, I'm an artist. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your art. Okay. Um, so I do a, a whole kind of a, array of things. Uh, I primarily am a painter. Um, I do sort of installative painting work, and uh, but I also do um, some design work in apparel and jewelry design. 
And can you explain to our audience some of it? Like um, you're wearing one of your scarves right now yeah. and your earrings. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do some screen printing and some bead work. Um, it's all kind of inspired by sort of things that I grew up learning about and uh, putting them into kind of in a contemporary sense and, you know, fashion wear and stuff like that. Uh, I do... In my screen printing work, I, I take my drawings from beadworks and then uh, the dentalium um, sort of motif of the chief's necklace and uh, all the many uses dentalium has across North America. <laughs> and your jewelry? Uh, my jewelry, uh, it's actually a brick stitch that I learned um, from my aunties when I was really young. And I've sort of contemporized it, adding uh, crystals and little diamonds and uh, dentalium on them as well. Great. And uh, Drew, tell us a little bit about your art. Uh, well, I'm a mask maker, and I'm inspired by and influenced by the Yupik and Anupiaq uh, cultures from Alaska. And so I take uh, knowledge um, from elders and from research that I've done in different places, looking at the intention of storytelling using masks. And so what I do is I, I learn about how people were telling stories and, and how we're able to connect to the world around us. And I create these masks um, that tell stories about things that are related to my life today, um, which is really important because uh, we need to continue to tell stories that are relevant to the times. And so um, I like to talk about uh, kind of the way we connect with the world around us. And maybe that's some of most of that's from my own perspective, but um, I do draw from kind of the larger community. But my forms, my masks are kind of turning more sculptural and they're looking at the spirited beings that we all are and how we can connect to uh, the spirits of our, uh, our souls, um, finding balance within ourselves, uh, within relationships with one another, and then within the land, and then within uh, like the spirit world, like our creator and things like that. And um, that comes from the belief that everything has spirit and that we need to honor and um, respect those spirits and take care of them. Um, so that's what my work tries to, to explain and, and share about. And what kind of materials do you use? Yeah, typically I use basswood, and a lot of people uh, traditionally use driftwood. But um, for because I don't go and harvest my own wood, I purchase it. And it's uh, that wood is from the northeast quadrant of America. It's a soft wood. It's a clear grain wood. And then I carve these forms the masks, and then I decorate them with things that are found within my world. Um, I'm not just limited to traditional materials that you might think you'll see on masks like bone and ivory and uh, baleen and, and feathers, but I'm using things like um, metals and sometimes plastics and um, some more, more modern materials. And um, some of the recent projects that you've done are healing masks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so thinking about the concept of telling story, I partnered with my friend Elizabeth Ellis, and we we created these three foot by five foot masks, huge, uh, like human size, and they were uh, there's ten of them, and the, each one of them represents a particular disease. I would I carved the ten masks, and then I handed them off to Liz, and she painted images uh, images of what disease looks like as it's interacting with the body, and so. Uh, when people would come up to the pieces, they'd have an emotional response because it's a human thing to have a disease uh, and then try to work through that um, because it's usually with people in our communities, whether it's uh, like our family members and things like that. So we're trying to, to work through that 
uh, process of that distortion. And so um, one of the things that we did is we had people sign the backs of these masks if they've been affected. And then we uh, just recently we ended up burning these um, to connect with a traditional uh, action of releasing that story. And what we wanted to release was the, the energy connected to the, 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 the disease and kind of let it go so that we didn't hold on to that burden of pain. And um, so that's what I did with these. We did that at the museum in Anchorage. Wow, yeah, that sounds that sounds really powerful and great. And, um, you know, people who are coming this week to Fairbanks, to the Alaska Federation of Natives Annual Convention, um, a lot of people look forward to what happens off of the convention floor and where you two are at mm -hmm. <laughs> in the arts and crafts. There's a lot of people who come and they just, I know it's my favorite part of the convention is seeing all the beautiful work and knowing that there's meaning um, behind the art and it's incorporating that culture. Uh, we went back there this week, uh, producer Emily Schwing and us, or myself, and uh, we got a chance to talk to some of the artists back there. My name is Jadrian Paniak. My art comes from, you know, generations down. Uh, my great-grandma, her mom, and my grandma and my mom. And um, the faces are made out of sealskin, and the furs are made from several different types of fur. And the boots are also made of sealskin. Yeah, and they, their actions, they have different actions, like hunting, fishing, and um, your family is well known for these types of dolls. Can you tell us a little bit about your late grandmother? Um, my late grandmother, she usually, um, well, she would make um, over 30 dolls, like every AFN. And she'd come, and by the third day, they'd all be out. And she, she was very, um, she was a really good woman. And why do you think it's important that young people um, learn, you know, their tradition, their culture, their art? Well, you know, this generation basically is like, they're not really, like, into things. Like, they're, like, on their phones and things like that. And I think it's important because they should know, like, where they come from and, you know, how things worked back then. Just you know, like, a little bit about their history. And um, like you said earlier, the dolls tell a story. What are some of the funny stories that you've seen your family create through the years? Well, my great-grandmother, Rosalie, she used to make these um, dolls that were sitting on the toilet. And she I just thought it was great because she'd make the, um, like, because back then they didn't have running water. So they'd use, um, like, five-gallon buckets. And she'd make that out of the seal skin. And like a colored tissue maybe on the hand yeah and my great grandmother well my grandmother she made the voting dolls and uh, what was your grandmother's name again ursula irvin pantiac irvin and she had just recently passed away when was that uh she had passed away on july in july if there's a young person out there and they want to you know, maybe they don't know a lot about their culture, the art that's being passed on through their families. What's your advice to them to help get them started? Well, I think, you know, it's always good to um, learn a lot about your culture and where you came from. And just that that's what motivates me because um, I'm young, I guess. And um, it just motivates me to stick to what my grandmother, my great-grandma, and my great-great-grandma have done, 
because knowing that I'm the last, the last person that's going to keep this going. And uh, Melissa, hearing from the young um, artist, she was talking about her passion and putting the passion into her art. What, what drives your passion? Um, so I kind of see myself as uh, having a really long journey into art. Um, I, I first, I've always wanted to be an artist since I was a little girl, but uh, I actually first became a social worker. Um, I went to school for psychology and was a social worker for a few years. Um, and right as kind of like I decided to pursue art, I, I actually met this community. You know, I met Drew. Uh, I met um, many mentors attending AFN and art and, you know, uh, just kind of becoming more engaged in the community here in Alaska. And I realized that, you know, I have a voice and I have a story that I have to tell, you know, and it's an indigenous one and it's a contemporary one. And, you know, really getting that message out there is important to me. I mean, what Drew was saying about his masks and about how, you know, there were these personal stories and it's about, you know, working through those stories and having it be a release. I mean, we were both part of this uh, exhibition that's um, going to be traveling to D.C. soon to the Cochrane Museum um, uh, called Decolonizing Alaska. And in that piece, um, I did more of my painting work, and uh, it was all revolved around um, the Athabascan puberty necklace, which is uh, this sort of rites of passage that happens for a young woman at puberty where uh, she's given a swan bone necklace. And it's this really kind of amazing symbol that represents their power, represents, you know, what makes them important to the community, you know, their ability to give life, their ability to, you know, be uh, a contributing member to that society. And uh, at my time, when I was 13, I, I, uh, I found out that I was, um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. So hearing Drew talk about that a little bit, that's really my, my story I have to tell, you know, and the you know, using art as this sort of method to facilitate that communication and to talk about these issues that affect our communities is really important to me, and that's what drives my passion, is communicating through this language of art. And, and this is your first time as an artist to uh, AFN? Yeah, it's my first time um, showing at AFN. I attended AFN uh, as a young person and uh, now I'm participating on a different way you know in a different sort of aspect not just listening now actually contributing in some way so and you're both young artists um, and maybe a little bit older than the young doll maker <laughs> um, who's who's uh, who's uh, been learning this from her you know from her family um, Drew why is it important to get young people involved in the arts well I think we all have a story to tell and it's connected to the story of all of our ancestors um, and we're at a really interesting time when there's change happening within our our own story uh, and then how we see ourselves and even where we want to go and um, I think art is a tool to help facilitate conversation um, but it's a good a good place to start if you want to learn about yourself, um, learn about your culture, and I think if you really want to connect with your art uh, culturally, you'll learn about your history because that'll influence some of the story that you tell, and um, it'll give you a reference of uh, 
kind of how you got how how you live your life where you are today um and art is important for young people because it helps them i mean traditionally in long t uh, a long time ago even um i mean all all of america we, we used to have times where we would be working together and we would be sitting in rooms together or we working the fields together like all these different things that uh, we would be doing as a community and I think art, get, if you're doing a class or you're doing some time where you're just kind of sitting and being with other people, it gives you time to uh, talk and connect and uh, gets your mind off of kind of the happenings of the world, but then allows you to process it uh, emotionally and um, in some ways physically. So that time, that time to just sit and kind of reflect is really important, and I think art can help do that. And when we look at uh, younger generations and younger people, I know uh, this week at the Elders and Youth Conference, it's reinforced and it's celebrated Native culture, and they promote the the youth to you know everything from using your language, even if you don't speak your language, even saying hello, even you know even if you get it wrong, just promoting. Um, and trying. Mm -hmm. uh, they also incorporate um, music and dance. And one of the sessions I went to was on fiddling. My name is Gino Fields. I'm from Fort Yukon. Oh, probably since I was a young man. How did um, this type of dancing get introduced to the people in your area? Uh, I think it started the Hudson Bay Company. They come down from Canada or something like that. They brought the fiddle music with them, and we learned it from, the, from them. Then I don't know how these dancers develop, but I'm glad they developed. People were saying how it's good for um, the soul and well, for sure. community. And can you of explain it that? Is. Yeah, it just yeah, it brings the community together. They see their young people out there dancing, like those two young kids. They they took the cake, and that's what it's all about. To help them have fun, and they had fun. You just enjoy it, you know. Enjoy to see the young kids participate in their culture. This is our culture. And that was a session at the Elders and Youth Conference. There were many other sessions, including um, traditional tattoos. There were other, the days always start off with the dance group. So culture is um, embraced at both conferences, really. Um, any thoughts, Melissa, on the fiddle session? Oh, <laughs> those, those fiddlers, um, well, Athabascan fiddlers are really my they're just a big part of our culture and communities and uh, my grandpas and my great uncles were all music was a huge part of every celebration of every you know meeting of you know I think that there's something about doing things together you know and music really brings you together Drew was, he said something about beating and it just reminded me it's like yeah it's we used to do these creative things together all the time we used to sit in beating circles and talk about things and it was a way to keep ourselves healthy and keep ourselves you know talking and realizing what's really going on in our community and I think you know these creative <laughs> things are what helps us talk about those it makes it, it makes it easy to talk about easier to talk about 
you know, those difficult discussions or talk about like, you know, the things that are going on in our communities that we need to change. And I think AFN is, you know, a really great time to do that. We're all together and we're, you know, living. I went, to, I've been going to the, the dances every night, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. And I'm like, so we're here, you know, dealing with all these really huge issues that we're going through the resolutions today and finding out what's been resolved and what needs to be worked on. But like in this moment, we're all singing and we're all laughing and we're all dancing together. And tomorrow, because we did this, we're able to talk about these hard things. So it's like back and forth of like doing something that's really good and wonderful and uplifting like the fiddlers and then going, you know, and then talking as a group about these big issues that we have to deal with, language revitalization, like you said, and, you know, there's just so many things and it brings people together. I mean, I came up here with my auntie, you know, who I don't always spend a lot of time with, but she's doing huge, you know, leaps and bounds with language. And I just got to spend all weekend talking language with her, you know, wow. so talking Indian. <laughs> so it was really great. And anything to add, Drew? No, I'm just really excited to be here. I think there's a lot of positive changes that are happening. And um, my hope is that uh, art can help spur on the conversation about spirit and how we're all connected. Um, because spirit is, the, I think, uh, the heart of uh, who we are. Um, because it's one of the core values of, of what it means to be indigenous. We value the spirit within each other and within the land and we honor the creator and and even our ancestors we we ask for ancestors to come and be a part of these conversations because they have wisdom that they can share and i hope that we can continue to have that conversation and and art from my perspective can be the uh, opening point for that and it's just amazing when you see people um you know uh uh, doing the traditional dancing, mm -hmm. just the, the smiles and the expressions on their faces. And we did hear a lot of elders talking about how it's part of healing because you are dealing with such, um, you know, heavy topics sometimes that it's good to just uh, end the day in a good way and in a healthy way and then come back tomorrow because you're re-energized for the next day. Mm -hmm. And um, they also, Elders and Youth Conference, have a talent night. So it's both, you know, this uh, very traditional music and um, some of the dances that I saw this week were great um, where there's a lot of humor, humor, all, all tribes, you know, a lot of tribes, we all have humor. And so um, it's just wonderful to see some of those dances, like they do the twist. I, I can't remember exactly what dance group, but it's, you know, a common one where they, where they incorporate the twist or, um, back, I think. yeah, they, I saw another one where they were doing a kissing dance. And so they were pretending to kiss and, um, you know, they have uh, hunting dances. So, you know, it's really neat to see these dances. So let's uh, take a listen to uh, a little bit of the like Native Scott talent night.
searching for a heart of gold I'm getting old That keeps searching for a heart of gold And that was uh, just a little snippet of the Native Scott Talent Night um, at the Elders and Youth Conference, and there were a lot of different performances that night, very, you know, some of the very traditional songs, and other, you know, incorporating uh, contemporary um, music into into their talents, too. And so, uh, Melissa, I want to thank you for joining us today, and just um, your final thoughts on the importance of uh, language, art, and culture in Alaska Native lives. Um, I think art is a, a way for us to move forward, and it's a way for us to um, communicate on a different way, you know, a way that we can all sort of relate to all in right. some sense. Well, we got to okay. take a short break. Okay. We'll be right all back. Right. Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice from the Carlson Center in Fairbanks. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. And today we're talking about culture and part of the conversations here this week at the Elders and Youth Conference and at the Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention is culture. And it's an important part of um, people's lives and incorporating it in their everyday, including into the policy talks that they um are uh, talking about and I have some guests and I have a new guest joining us and uh, to get this uh, half hour started uh, let me reintroduce our guests um, Drew go ahead and introduce yourself again hi uh, Drew Michael uh, born in Bethel I'm Yupik and Anupiak I live in Anchorage and I'm a mask maker oh great hi my name is Peter Williams I was born in Bethel I'm half Yupik and European blend raised in Sika I hunt seals and sea otters and so with them Oh, great. Okay, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Crystal Worrell Dementive, and I'm Clinkett and Athabaskan, and I'm from Fairbanks in Juneau, Alaska. I'm an artist and a performer. Oh, great. Well, thank you for joining us. And Crystal, tell, um, tell us a little bit about the art you do. Uh, I got my Bachelor's of Fine Arts from the Institute of American Indian Arts and Jewelry Metalsmithing, Studio Arts. Uh, but I do a lot of painting, printmaking, um, and I've been trying to get into glass working, uh, which has been tricky with not having a glass studio in Alaska, but I'm working on it. So, mixed media. And how do you incorporate, um, I, I've seen your table and some of your work, and you, I saw some of your prints. Can you dis describe some of those? Most of the prints there are silkscreen prints. Uh, I just started doing this series um, called Baby Formline Series, and it's very minimalized formline design of Southeast animals that are very pop and kind of cute and colorful. So those have been very popular. I also have 
laser-cut alderwood earrings that I dye with berries that I pick from Juno. Kind of a fusion of traditional harvest with really modern technology. And then I also have giclee prints of my painting originals that I have. And uh, Peter, tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so I harvest seals and sea otters and I sew with them by hand. And I think in general, a lot of my focus is on healing and spirituality and asking the animals for their life and and transforming with them as I make them into other other things also is like also part of the process. Um, and I'm working on bringing that into kind of the high-end fashion scene in New York and recently had a runway show in Brooklyn Fashion Week in May. And um, Peter, how did you learn uh, to hunt and fish and well, I was raised uh, by a white single mother in Sika, so I was a bit confused <laughs> with my identity as a man and as a Yupik man. Uh, and then comes out to like find out that I've been Yupik the whole time. <laughs> and this thing that I've been searching for has always been within me. And so this process of subsistence uh, and connection with nature has really helped me realize who I am. And Drew, do you have anything to add what, to what Peter was just saying? Uh, I too was adopted, out, or I was adopted out of my culture, and um, I didn't feel connected until I found the mask making um, as something that I could do. And I also was like in the wilderness, feeling like I didn't know part of my identity. And as I got older, I I started to claim and recognize my identity as a Yupik and a Nupiak man. And how has that influenced your work? Um, well, that understanding of identity has gone forward and forward and forward, and I've transformed so many times, and it's played itself out in my art. And art, my art, for me, like the personal process, is almost like a journal. Um, and I can throw all the things that I'm thinking about and feeling and the concepts I'm uh, kind of grappling with they they show themselves within my work and I can actually like put my work out in a line and say this is the series from this time of my life and this is the series from you know when I was a Christian and then when I was a, a straight man and then when I came out as gay and then when I was like so there's like all these different things that have influenced my work through that transformation process. And art is also part of uh, economic development and a lot of people rely on these shows um, you know to help them um, pay their bills. Uh, Crystal, how important is the economic side of it? Are you referring to like it's being a being job? A full-time artist? Working artist? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think it's very important. Uh, you know, the ancestors have been doing this long before the word art was even a word. We never had the word for art, it was just a means to live and survive. And I think we're doing that in our modern day. It's just getting by and surviving at what we're good at, what we were born to do. Well, and our producer, Emily Schwing, talked to an artist, um, Edna Deacon, and uh, she talked, she's a basket maker, and she talked a little bit about this as well. Do you sell your baskets and your, and your uh, yeah, barrettes? Uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah, when I have some people come and buy. And how, I mean, what do you do with the money that you make from selling your crafts? I, I save the money for oil. For heating oil? For heating oil, because in our area, the, 
heating oil it's, it's expensive um so how much do you spend in a year on heating oil mm, i couldn't i couldn't even say how much when it's severely cold we had to turn it up high our uh oil stove how many baskets does it take to uh fill your your oil tank mm. Maybe I'll help my energy, maybe twice a year, but not uh, not half a tank, that's too much. Maybe I'll buy um, 15 gallons or 20 gallons. Just from selling one basket? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So what would you charge for one basket? Oh, it'll be um, maybe a little one. It'd be about two hundred and fifty. Two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, with the birch bark basket. But I'll have to save half of it for the food too. For food. For food. Yeah. Well, so what kind of food? Like uh, essential, like uh, flour, beans, rice. Mm -hmm. And so is that the only source of income you have, is your, your baskets and the barrettes and the, the hair barrettes that you make? Oh, no, no. I do have uh, Social Security. Yeah. I'm getting my husband's Social Security, too. Mm -hmm. So would you say that um, your birch bark baskets keep you afloat? Like, do they help yeah, you make ends it, meet? Yeah, it keep me afloat, yes, because... Things cost so high at the native store down there. <clears throat> Everything costs expensive. Mm -hmm. So Peter, what was going through your mind when you were hearing the um, woman talk about um, her baskets? Well, I was really admiring her voice, <laughs> you know, and, and being able to hear an elder speak and you get to hear that culture and and her elders in her voice and so I was kind of whisked <laughs> away by that um, but my heart yeah my heart goes goes out to that situation and I for me I, I scrape by I feel like I can say I have an art career now I've been an artist for my whole life but now I have an art career but that doesn't mean <laughs> that I don't scrape by and worry about money constantly and and uh, yeah the the economic components tough um, I, and I think with, in the sense of the U.S. dollar, because, uh, peop, you know, like economics and subsistence, they went together. Uh, subsistence was economics. It was just didn't have the U.S. dollar attached to it. And <laughs> now that the U.S. dollar is attached to our life, it, it's really changing things. And I, I don't really see it what's called sustainable. And, it, and it, it's hurting, you know, it's hurting our people and our culture and it's kind of, it's tough it's part of also why I do what I do is I'm trying to get to a place where art and subsistence activities can be more towards uh, what's considered a living wage and so that's why I'm kind of focused in New York City <laughs> Andrew what would be your advice to maybe someone who um, you know wants to do art full-time but they're worried about not being able to survive in the Western world well first thing for anybody who's interested in art is to allow yourself time to actually do it <laughs> first first um and don't ever feel like you have to make it perfect right away because it's a process um but if you're trying to make a living off of it or make it a career or 
or do it kind of more of a, as a full-time thing, um, really try to spend time thinking about uh, not only the process and, and how you create something, but the story that you're trying to share and uh, have it connect to your life. Um, because I think that'll make it a story that people can connect with themselves and then share that message with people. Um, and artists sometimes have a hard time connecting with people. Um, but I think it's really important to try to get yourself out there and meet as many people as you can uh, because art is a community builder. Um, it's not just something that I do to make money, but it's a way that I help build community. And I think... Um, and not every artist has to do this, but I think it is important because art does represent, uh, in a lot of ways, kind of how we see the world. Um, and so, does that answer your question? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Crystal, how do you, how did you, you know, so when uh, an upcoming artist would, you know, what would be your advice to them? Like Drew was saying, trying to build the community. How? What would you suggest? Um, I I feel like there's, if I were to visually put it how I see it, there's a triangle where the modern world and our indigenous way of life are on opposite sides of the triangle, but that doesn't mean they're not connected because at the top of the triangle there's a space. And I feel uh, one of those... One of the ways, there's many ways that we could find where they connect. Um, and I'm exploring that right now with the business my brother and I are running called Trickster Company. We're innovative native graphic design and art gift shop. And um, it's always a struggle to make time to get involved with the community, to learn our traditional ways of life, and to also learn the modern ways of life and where they overlap, like starting a business uh, to get by, but also studying form line design the way that it was meant to be studied and learned, and how do we also make a profit doing that and teach other people about the design and how do we involve the community? So it's it's like what Drew said: make time, make time, and um, make an effort to find the connection. And 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 you mentioned learning traditional ways. Uh, this week, the at one of the sessions at the Elders and Youth Conference, they uh, Marjorie Tabone, a former Miss Indian World and Miss Rio, um, shared a lot of different um, sessions. One was on tattooing, and it was also how to prepare a, a seal. I'm just going to give you a couple of of things that we do to prepare um, today. And it might take a few more um, times to, a uh, few extra hours, I guess, to take care of it in a whole, because I can't take care of this whole thing in just an hour and a half. So um, I'm going to just take my time. I'm going to take care of it how I take care of it. It may extend past. You guys are more than welcome to stay here as I do it. In the end, we hope to have a seal that's butchered, all the meat taking off, taken off, all of the blubber taken off the skin, the blubber processed into seal oil, and the skin stretched on a frame. That's our goal. Um, and the goal, it may, may happen today, it may happen tomorrow. But all, what I know is that when we have a seal, we always finish it. We never just stop halfway and, and just leave it. Um, and we don't waste, and we try and be as respectful to the seal as possible. 
So, this is a nachuk. Everybody say nachuk. Nachuk. It, um, in, it's an Inupiaq word for uh, ring seal. Uh, we also get qasraqs. Everybody say qasraqs. That's a spotted seal. Um, one of the ones that we, we really harvest are ugruk. Everybody say ugruk. Good. Ugruk are bearded seal. They're the biggest seal that we harvest. Those ones that we use for makluk bottoms, uh, the skins for makluk bottoms, we use them for umaks, uh, the big boats that we cover. Um, there's lots of lots of purposes and, and things we need we do with the um, with the seal. And as I go through this process of butchering and um, and getting rid of all of the, or just you know doing each step, I'll try and um, express all of the things that we do with the seal. Um, seals were one of our main um, sources of food, and um, it it also kept us warm. It also provided light for the nanak, which is our seal oil lamp. So our seal is basically a center of our lives, and the amount of respect we have them is immense. We made songs for them. We um, we made prayers and ceremonies around these um, these animals, these creatures um, that that give us clothing, that give us nourishment, that give us heat, that give us light. And that was Marjorie Tawbone, who um, held a session on how to prepare a seal, and it was packed. It was it was a very very packed session. There was standing room only, and people trying to look over, and it was just really great to see the youth engaged and the elders engaged, and also just the way she talked about caring and preparing, and 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 how it's connected. And you hear a lot of people here this week talking about the connection to the land and being people of the land. So, Peter, with what you do, um, what did you think about uh, what Marjorie had to say? It's beautiful. Yeah, and very touching. Um, maybe being a little skeptical, <laughs> pessimistic, but also kind of sad that it takes, <laughs> you know, like, like I mean, it's beautiful that it's happening here at a convention in a room, but it's also sad that it's happening, like, and it's not, like, happening in, like, the village and not happening on the beach, you know, but but it needs to happen, it need, and, it, and if this is the venue for it, that's beautiful, and that, that should continue, but also I feel a little sad. And how did you learn um, what, how to do what you're doing? Um, I'm kind of what the Western world would call self-taught, but I don't view it self-taught because I would go ask people who are es- experts. <laughs> They're like, how do I do this? <laughs> and they would tell me, and then I'd go experiment and I'd go back, well, what do you think? And they'd say, well, do this. <laughs> um, and uh, Crystal, your thoughts? I definitely agree with you, Peter, that uh, in order to learn something um, we have to take it upon ourselves a certain degree to to learn it even if uh, my mom didn't my mom was interested in learning how to tan fish skin and I was interested and we weren't able to learn from our grandmother or before her in my time and so we posted on Facebook and we asked around and finally we found various people and I've had three different people show me how to tan a fish skin and work with um, gut skin sewing because I just, I'd been eager to learn and I didn't have anyone in in my immediate family that knew how to do it. So just went out there and like the self-taught version of, you know, asking people for help 
And I think it's some of the discussions that we heard is it's about also adapting. And so example is using the technology or using the venue as a conference where these uh, young people would never be able to experience anything like that. Drew, your thoughts on adapting to the society around us? Yeah, well, it's interesting being a mask maker because mask makers would talk about spirit uh, in such deep ways through the storytelling of using masks. And when Western uh, missionaries and things like that came in and changed how people were living entirely, changing everything about the how people were living, the healers and the concepts of thinking about how everything had spirit, was they were also changed. And so now... As a mask maker, I'm I'm starving to find more information about how to um, connect with the spirits and then talk about the spirits and then to help facilitate times of healing. And that um, and I ask so many different healers that I know, but there's a lot of knowledge that is lost, like there's through the orals, oral traditions. But I I've been able to like I'm learning about spiritual healing through my ancestors and they're sharing knowledge with me and they're not necessarily living but they're sharing that knowledge through the spirit the unseen um, but then I, I, I ask p people who are healers uh, about those experiences and things that I've learned and um, there's confirmations there and uh, part of the adapting is um, what people are talking about today, all these policies, the resolutions going up, and AFN is a time where local, state, and federal leaders come and celebrating 50 years of this advocacy group um, was shared a lot this week. And part of it, though, is educating others because I'm sure you've you, if you go to a show somewhere else, people are like, oh, you, you know, that's a seal. Oh, my gosh. You know, or that's um, they don't understand the ways of life. And there's also policy uh, that we're hearing about this week talking about um, an ivory ban. So, yes, the Fish and Wildlife Service can work with Native communities to authenticate walrus ivory and uh, to help educate um, you know, border agents and so on on the kind of uh, paperwork that's important to legitimize um, these objects. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure w what is in process, but that is something that I'm going to follow up on with my team to make sure we can make it easy for tribal artisans to comply. But what we don't want to do is to create a loophole, and the those who are poaching elephants around the world are very creative at exploiting every single loophole that's out there to transport uh, illegally obtained ivory. It's pretty easy for someone that knows what they're looking at to tell the difference between walrus ivory and elephant ivory, but it's not easy for an untrained eye. And that is uh, something that we can facilitate by a stamp of approval, as, as you suggest, or, or uh, uh, an authentication. And so I'm going to follow up on that when I go back. And that was um, Secretary Sally Jewell of the Interior. And what happened is that there's a federal ban against elephant ivory, and it has had some consequences on Native Alaska Native artists that work with um, ivory from walruses. And so Jewell was here um, sharing her thoughts with our producer Emily Schwing on how to, I guess, I, maybe what can be done.
your your thoughts, Peter? Hmm. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting and challenging when it comes to art and regulations in general is how can you regulate art? <laughs> uh, you, you know, for example, I like to give is, yeah, I, someone can vomit on a canvas and someone will say, that's not art. Another person will say, that's great art. And neither is right or wrong because it's art. So once we get to this kind of regulation and quantification, and in particular in these kind of circumstances when they are people in positions of power that are making and kind of imposing regulations on art, and they themselves really aren't from an art community, but more of enforcement and bureaucratic, which I think is could be fairly well said is a completely different worldview than the artist. So I think in general, it it can get pretty challenging to to live in the same world and share that, even when even when our goals are the same. You know, when when it's about respect and sustainability of animals, and and when it's about appreciation of art and rights of artists and rights for creatures that have a spirit to live in this world too uh, so although we have similar goals like our world views can be very different which can be very challenging and heated too because because it starts to encroach upon really deeply rooted beliefs on both sides and have you had have you had any experiences when when you're showing your um, art that people you're giving an education really about this is what it's about mm-hmm. when you're using animals? So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I think I think unfortunately in our society we're just so disconnected we don't even think about when we wash our hands that we're killing life. You know, <laughs> when we're eating a carrot that we're killing a spirit like a spiritual being died for us, and. And so, like, I find that, like, I get all kinds of different reactions at crafts fairs. Um, uh, one that's interesting, and it's a little different than what you're asking, but one, like, they'll touch it, they'll look at my hat, and they'll say, is it warm? <laughs> it's like, no, these sea otters are genetically modified so that you can wear this fur in Florida, and it'll keep you cold. <laughs> you know? So it's, and using that as an example uh, just of of kind of where we're at, in society and and I do think like at times people are a little uncomfortable or not sure how to approach it like some people will say like well do you do you get a tough time from those natural environmentalist types the guy asked me in DC and I and I said well I am one of those natural environmentalist types and he's like you know what I mean but so yeah there's there's some confusion out there and I'm I'm working on that I helped create a film harvest it's going to be showing at UAF um, and also got into American Indian Film Festival and Red Nation Film Festival in California. And that is to try to share, like, why we harvest sea otters, <laughs> how we celebrate it, why that's important to us, to try to bridge those gaps. Because there is that past exploitation, and there is that past exploitation of ivory and current exploitation of our ivory. Like, that, that is important. These are animals that should be taken care of. And, uh, Crystal, your thoughts? I, I feel the answer is easy, but I know it's not. And the reason for that is, is um, we as Klinka people believe that an animal gives itself to you when you're hunting it. And I know that's more than just the Klinka people. And when an animal sees and gives itself to you, you respect them by... Uh, 
eating every part of them and using every part of them to feed your family or your community and use the parts that are not edible, such as ivory, for art to honor them and represent the relationship, the circular relationship that exists between the people and the animals. And I feel that is a very clear answer to why banning ivory, um, for example, of hunt people who hunt ivory just for the ivory and waste the animal and have no relationship with the animal, that's a dramatically different difference that I see and um, I also I keep thinking of paralleling it with how whaling used to be uh, whales became endangered because of all the over whaling that was happening in Japan and around the world and when they banned whaling it affected the northernmost territories in Alaska and the tribes up there how they live and could not live or be a community or be or identify the people that they are to this day without the whale. And the whale themselves rely on um, the Inuit and Yupik people up north as well because they cut holes in the ice so that they can breathe, they can come up and breathe. So there's this um, interchanging and I think forever transforming relationship that exists between people and animals. And to me, that makes the answer easy, but I know it's complicated. I just want to thank all of you for joining us today, and uh, happy uh, AFN, and thank you for sharing your, your views and your stories, and um, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Alaska's Native Voice. I've been your host, Antonia Gonzalez. I want to thank our board operator, Lauren Dixon, and our producer, Emily Schwing. Alaska's Native Voice, produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez and Emily Schwing. Funding provided by Chalista Corporation, the Atwood Foundation, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the Siri Foundation, Manilik Association, ConocoPhillips, Rasmussen Foundation, and South Central Foundation. This has been a production of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.